Hey, good morning, South Hills. It is nice to finally meet you. It has really been um, fun. We are, my family, have been, we've been anxiously waiting for this opportunity to be here and to share this time with you. And just worshiping with you this morning was amazing. So thank you so much for inviting us here and for making us feel so welcome already. We're really excited to be here today. Today I want to look at a passage with you in 1 Peter, um, a book I know you're familiar with, but I, I think it'll be an encouragement for you and for us today. But before we do that, I do want to take a moment just to, I don't want to miss the opportunity to introduce my family to you. Um, they weren't so excited about coming up on stage with me today, so um, I brought a picture instead. And if you're watching online, this will be helpful as well. So I brought a picture. Um, you've seen a picture of us already before. This is another one. We, we, we got some pictures recently. It turns out candidating in a new church was the push that we needed to update our family photos. So... My wife thanks you for that, and uh, my, the grandparents even more so. So thank you for, for that. But this is a picture we just took a couple weeks ago of our family. Um, I'll just introduce you to my, fam- my wife, Lisa. We've been married for 19 years. We just celebrated our wedding anniversary this last week. Yes. She is a real gift to me, and um, I hope you get a chance to meet her. Um, she, she's um, fantastic. She's wonderful. So uh, that's Lisa. Then our son, Jay, over here, he is, he's, four, he's 14. He's um, in eighth grade right now. There's uh, Renee. She's 13. She's in seventh grade. And then we have Kai. She's 10 in the fourth grade. And then Levi, he just turned eight. He's in first grade. And so this is the fam. Uh, you might see them out in the lobby. They're anxious about being here, but excited about being here as well. So Again, we're, we're, we're grateful to share in this time. Now, um, you may have some questions for me um, and for our family, and our hope is to be able to answer some of those questions while we're here, both today and tomorrow night. But I will say this, your lead pastor transition team asked us a lot of questions in this process. Um, they asked us a lot of questions, and not only that, but they um, asked for references that they could call and ask questions of as well. And of course, you're thinking, well, of of course, we would hope and expect that they would ask for references and make those calls. But here's the thing. Part of the process, we gave them six or seven references that they could call. And they called all of those references and they asked them questions about us. But then um, they asked those references for references. And then they asked all of those people the questions about us. And then after that, they asked those references for one or two more references. And they made all of those calls. So they made multiple layers of references that just kept going out and out and out. Now, they were asking us a lot of questions, um, and that's a good thing. And at the same time that the, the pastoral transition team and the elders were asking us questions, guess what we were doing? We were asking questions too. <laughs> we want to know, what is South Hills Church like? What is this church um, known for? What does this church value? What does the church care about? What are the strengths of this church? What are the weaknesses of this church? We know you're not a perfect church. If you are, please don't invite me. I'll mess that up. So... We, we, we just want to ask questions, and it's good and normal process to ask questions if you're entering into a partnership with somebody. And the, part of the question is just to get to know each other, but also to say, do we, are we like-minded? Do we have certain values and core beliefs that we share? Um, and that's an important thing in, in a relationship. I met my wife, uh, Lisa, at my brother's wedding. She was a bridesmaid. I was a groomsman. So it worked out pretty nicely. We actually met the, the night before at the wedding rehearsal, and after I met her, I immediately started asking questions. I, I started asking people, okay, who's this girl over here? You know, what, what can you tell me about her? <laughs> what is she like? And I started to get some feedback and started to get some answers. And three things emerged that were really important to me. I found out that Lisa loved Jesus. Amen. I'm like, okay, that's good. Yes. Then I found out that she had high character. I'm like, all right. 
And then I found out that she had recently become single. I'm like, that's all I need to know right now. That's all I need to know. So we started dating the next week. And um, as part of that dating process, we started to get to know each other. And as we got to know each other, it was a lot of fun. When we started evaluating, is this going to be a long-term relationship? We started to want to know, okay, what kind of beliefs do you have? What are your values? It's so foundational. It's so critical. It's so important if we want to have a long-term relationship that we're aware of those things. And that's why questions are good. And it's been part of this process with South Hills Church. We want to know, are we like-minded? Do we have and share certain values and beliefs that are, that, are, that are together? And there's a number of things that we love about this church and that we've heard in the process, uh, this process but two values that I want to talk about this morning um, that are deeply embedded into the DNA of this church is that you have a commitment to love people. That you have a desire to love people, the least, the last, and the lost. And I love that. You also have a commitment to God's word, to follow God's word, to le- learn God's word, to allow it to lead you. And I love that too. That there's a commitment to love people and a commitment to God's word. And what I want to do today is look at a passage in First Peter where Peter talks about those things. He talks about the value of loving people and the commitment, the resource that we have in God's word. And I think it'll be an encouragement for us today as well as a challenge for us to say, let's hold on to this value. And let's continue to grow in this value together as a church and as individuals. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I want to read this passage for you. And and I'll say this, I do know that there's, um, as a church, you've had a history of, of standing for the reading of God's Word. And I just want to affirm that practice today and just invite you to please stand in honor of God's Word. And let's, let's read this passage together. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22, says this. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for one another, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Okay, you may be seated. Peter begins in verse 22 by saying this. Oh, do we, oh, can we go back to 22? All right, there we go. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. So Peter is talking to a group of Christians and he's just finished reminding them of their position in Christ, what God has done for them, that they've been redeemed, transformed. So he says, now that you've, been, now that you've purified yourselves, that is, now that you've been forgiven, how have they been forgiven? By obeying the truth. That is the truth of the gospel through faith in Jesus Christ that we've been forgiven. Now, now that they have a, a, a right vertical relationship, a proper vertical relationship with God, it ought to leak out into your horizontal relationships. Well, how is it supposed to leak out into your horizontal relationships? He says, with a sincere love for one another, and here's the command, love one another deeply from the heart. That's the command. 
as, an ex- as we experience God's deep love for us, not shallow, not passive, as we experience his love for us and it transforms us, it ought to impact our relationships. That we love people with intention. That we love people deeply, not shallow, but in a deep way from the heart. This is the command. This is what he's calling us to. And this is the value of, New, of, of, of South Hills Church, that you guys have a, a, a deep love for people, and it's, it's demonstrated through your ministries, that you have ministries that reach out to people. Um, you have ministries that care and support people. You have uh, a, a, a passion for missions to reach the world uh, with the good news of Jesus Christ, that you have an impact in this community. You have a desire as a church and a commitment to love people, the least, the last, and the lost. And that's a fantastic thing. But here's the real test. Here's the real test of love. The test when it comes to loving people deeply from the heart is really challenged when we're suffering. It is difficult to love deeply from the heart when we're suffering. See, it's one thing to love people when things are going great and we love them and all things are good, but it's so much more challenging to love when we're suffering, when we're stressed, and when we're struggling. See, when we're stressed, it's easy to withhold love and feel entirely justified doing it. When we're suffering, it's easy for us to take our pain out on those people who are closest to us, to lose patience, to lash out in anger. And whether we know it or not, we then become the source of their suffering. You see, it's, it's challenging for us to love when we're struggling. And of course, No one here would know what that's like, right? No one here would know what it's like to struggle or be stressed or to suffer, especially not in this past year. Yes, but if you had, if you did, you would understand, yes, it is challenging to love deeply, to love sincerely from the heart when I'm struggling, when I'm stressed, when things are going, when things are in, and I'm in a difficult place. So the question is, how do we do it? What resource do we have to be able to love people deeply from the heart, even when we're suffering. And when you know what Peter points us to? This is what he points us to. Right. Amen. He says, you have a divine resource for radical living. You can live differently and you can love deeply because of the word of God. This is the resource that God has given to us to transform us, to change us, so that we can live holy lives, separate lives, so we can live a way that loves others, even when we're suffering. Look at what he says in verse 23. He says this, now, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. The word of God reveals something to us that's so important. It reveals new life in, in, in Christ. And so if, you want to, if, you're, if you're a note taker, here it is, that God's word reveals new life in Christ. God's word. See, the basis for loving others deeply is not, Peter's, Peter's basis for loving others deeply is not just try harder. It's not just manufacture the ability to love people. He's saying, no, 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 we have a resource. We have God's word that's revealed new life in Christ. It's the good news, Jesus Christ, in us. And he says, that for we've been born again. The question is, what does it mean to be born again? Well, to be born again, it, it simply means this. For all of us have been born physically. Do we, do we have that slide? The, the, um, for you've been born again. Yeah, not a perishable seed. Let's go to the next one. But when he's saying about being born again, it's this, that all of us are born physically, right? We all are born physically, and ultimately we will perish physically. Can you show that slide there? Um, There we go, physical life. We have a physical birth, and we all will perish physically. But here's the deal. This does not have to be the end of the story. God's word reveals to us the good news about Jesus Christ, that through faith in Christ, 
we can have eternal life. So we can be born again spiritually. Go ahead and show that slide. We can have spiritual life that is eternal. John chapter 3 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his life, his one and only son, for that whoever believes in him, what? Shall not perish, but have eternal life. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. And here's why this is important. That through the word of God reveals the good news that we can now be saved for eternity through faith in Jesus. But not only that, we can live differently now. That through faith in Jesus Christ, he gives us eternal life, but we can live differently now. We have a new spiritual capacity to love others deeply, sincerely from the heart. Not about us, but it's about Christ in us, the Holy Spirit at work through us. And this is revealed to us through the Word of God. The Word of God reveals this new life that we have with a new spiritual capacity to live differently, to be God's people and His representatives, to love others sincerely. And you say, well, how, do we, how can we trust it? Can we really trust it? Well, Peter goes on to talk about how we can trust the word of God and, and what it's revealed to us. In the following verse, it says this, For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So he's quoting from Isaiah, and he's making a comparison here. He's comparing um, human glory to the glory of the word of God. And here's the comparison. Verse 24, he's talking about human glory. He says this, For all people are like grass. Their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and then the flowers fall. So we all are, we sprout up, we flourish, and then we wither and die. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? This is human glory right here. But he compares that to the glory of the word of God. But the word of the Lord endures forever. It has a lasting glory. It endures forever. If you want to fill in a next, the, the next part in your notes, is this, that God's word endures forever. God's word endures forever. And this is important for us to know, important for us to understand. There's a couple things about the Bible that you may not know. Let me just point out a couple of facts about the Bible. The first is this, that the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Did you know that? And that great truth it speaks, to, speaks says something about the enduring nature of God's word. Did you also know this? The Bible is the most shoplifted book of all time. I won't ask you how you got your Bible this morning, okay? But I will say this, you know, there is a message that says, oh, the Bible, it's just, you know, it's just a, it's just a, you know, old and diminishing book, but it's not. It's flourishing. It's continued to grow in popularity. It's the best-selling book of all time. People all around the world want to get their hands on the Bible. And apparently they're willing to do whatever it takes to get their hands on the Bible, Okay. Again, I'm just glad you have a Bible. I'm not here to judge you. I'm just glad you do, okay? But this is, this, is, this is it. Now, the questions that come up when it comes to the Bible, yes, it's enduring, but the questions that typically come up is, is the Bible still relevant today? Because it's an ancient document, is it still relevant? And then secondly, can we trust it? Now, I don't have time to answer all of your questions and all the questions that might come up related to the Bible and its trustworthiness. But let me just mention a few things that point to the trustworthiness of God's word and its enduring impact in our lives. Let me just mention a few things. The first one is this, that, that, that God's word has been faithfully recorded. God's word has been faithfully recorded. If we just look at the great works of antiquity, 
We just look at a, a couple of them compared to the New Testament. So we have Aristotle, a philosopher, several volumes of work, Herodotus, who we owe much of our understanding of ancient history to, Plato, student of Socrates, he was the mentor to Aristotle, Caesar, you've heard of Caesar, um, and then uh, we have the New Testament. So you just look at these different uh, ancient documents. Now, what you may not know about these documents is that we do not have any of the original documents um, from, from antiquity. We don't have them. They have all, um, of all ancient documents, these ancient documents of all subjects have crumbled with the dust. And th- those original documents are called the autographs. But what we have is um, copies of them. We call those the manuscripts. And they're handwritten documents. We didn't have printers back then. They couldn't copy them. So we, they're handwritten documents. They're copies. And what we have is copies of the originals. Now, in terms of understanding, has it been faithfully recorded? You, one of the things you look for is to say, when, what's the time gap? What's the lapse between when it was originally written to when we have our first copy? Now, now, just comparing these ancient works with the New Testament, you might be surprised by the delay, the time gap from when the original document was written to the first copy that we have. And so let's just look at them together. Aristotle, 1,400 years before we have our first copy of Aristotle. That's a pretty big time gap. Okay, then we go to Herodotus, 1,300 years. Plato, 1,200 years. Caesar, 1,000 years. The New Testament, 40 years. Unless we're wrong. Because some scholars say it should be 20. Here's the deal. You, you compare the New Testament to all these great works of antiquity, works that you can go to the library and check out, and you don't question, is this faithful? Is this, is this true? Has it been preserved? No, you don't question those. The, the New Testament stands so much more farther superior than all of those other works in terms of how it's been faithfully recorded and how we have it. It is trustworthy in that sense. Then let's look at the next thing that I want to mo- mention is that is it reliably transmitted? So, yes, there's a time gap, but now we have a copy. And if we have a copy of the original, the question is, well, was it, was it, is it reliable transmission? Did the message, the original message, get copied over accurately? Was it reliably transmitted? And so when you have a copy, you start to ask yourself, okay, are we going to play out a, a, a bad game of, of uh, telephone? You've played that game before, telephone. You know, you start a message, and then you say something, and then say to the next person, and they say to the next person. And by the time it gets to the end, it's like an entirely different message. You know, something like you start with, Today I'm going to walk my dog. And then it goes to the next person, then the next person, the next person. And by the time it gets to the end, the message is, Jeff Bennett is running for president. And you're like... It's an entirely different message. And some of you are like, all right, that's great. But that wasn't the original, that wasn't the original message. So you have to ask the question, is, well, how do we know that it's transmitted reliably. And we do that by looking at the number of copies. The greater number of copies give us a greater number, a greater confidence that it's been reliably transmitted. So let's just look again at these, these, uh, <laughs> these different works. So Aristotle, we have 49 copies. Herodotus, we have 109. Plato, 210. Caesar, 250. That's pretty good. New Testament, 5,856. Listen, it stands above all of these great works of antiquity. It's incredible to, to question the transmission accuracy of the New Testament is to question all of ancient history. It, it just is so incredible. And it's not just that it was reliably transmitted, but it has a consistent message. Just, just let this sink in for a moment. I love this. Maybe you've heard this before, but I just think it's fantastic. The Bible consists of 66 books by 39 authors in three different languages over the span of 1,500 years over three continents. That's a lot. But what? It has one message. Isn't that amazing? One message. 
And you just think about the diversity of the writers in the New Testament. You have Peter, he's a fisherman. You have Paul, he's a rabbi. You have Matthew, he's a tax man. What do they have in common? Nothing. They have what, but they have a shared message. Yes, they have Jesus in common, and, and they have one message, and that's what they point to. They point to Jesus. And this is an incredible thing, because if you ask my, my Jewish grandfather, and he would tell you, you know, if anytime you have uh, two Jews in a room together, you have a minimum of three opinions. That, that, that's, that's what he would tell you. And the fact that these guys are all coming and they're, they're, they're agreeing with the message, it's one consistent message pointing to Jesus Christ. It's incredible. Well, not only does it have a consistent message, but it also is, it's been continually tested and it continues to endure throughout time. And it has an enduring impact. And it's been tested and challenged and attacked by powerful people, brilliant people, and it continues to endure. Let me just highlight two for you. The first one is this Emperor Diocletian. As early as 303 AD, he tried to eradicate the Bible. He tried to get rid of it. He, he tried to destroy it. And in spite of real and genuine efforts, guess what? The Bible continued to flourish. And it, and, and it, it, and it continued to grow. Then Voltaire, I think this one is interesting. Voltaire is a French uh, philosopher, enlightenment writer, an atheist. He had this to say about the Bible. He said this, 100 years from today, the Bible will be a forgotten book. Here's the interesting thing. 50 years after Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society purchased Voltaire's home and his printing press and used it to print their Bibles. (laughs) The irony there is powerful. See, God's word, it's been tested, but it continues to endure. But it's not only been tested by powerful people and brilliant people, it's been tested personally. I've tested it personally. Recently, I met with a a young man who has struggled with some failed relationships uh, and some addiction issues. And he, he came to me and he was struggling in his faith. And so we were talking through some of the stuff in his life that he's been going through. And he's, we started talking about um, his doubts about Christianity and his, his faith in the Bible. And, and we went back and forth and back and forth. And at some point I just stopped. And I said, can I tell you something from my personal experience? Can I tell you that personally, every single time I've ignored God's word, it's led to pain in my life. See, every single time, and I've tested it, trust me, I've tried. And every single time I say, God, I'm not going to listen to your voice. I'm going to listen to Scott's voice. Every single time, ultimately, it leads to emptiness. It's led to enslavement. It's led to pain, harm to myself, and harm to others. That's been my experience. He looked me in the eyes, and he said, I agree. That's been my experience, too. All of a sudden, we weren't divided over arguments and theology and debates over, you know, philosophy and validity of scripture, but we had a shared common experience with God's living and enduring word. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter four, the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. God's word is alive and active. It is not a dead and dying book. It is God's living and active word. And it, and it impacts and it penetrates our lives. It would be foolish for us to ignore his word and not to say, I need to pay attention to what God is saying. Which is the third thing that I want you to see. The third thing that I want you to see is this, that God's word has the power to transform. God's word has the power to transform. See, Peter wants us to live lives that love others. 
that love deeply, sincerely from the heart. And in order to do that, there's some things that we need to put off and there's some things that we need to pursue. He goes on to say, here's what you need to put off, put down so that you can pursue loving others well. And this is what he says in verse one of chapter two. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. This is the list that he says, hey, this stuff, it's gonna get in the way of you loving people. Of you loving people sincerely, deeply from the heart, malice. Uh, sorry, yeah, um, oh, let's go back to verse 1. Um, malice is, is it's just another word for it's wickedness and nastiness. And then there's deceit. That's, that's us lying about how wicked and nasty we can be. There's hypocrisy. That's living according to our lies. Envy, um, being um, frustrated with where we're at um, and then seeing how God's goodness is in someone else's life and being frustrated about that. And then slander, it's telling other people why God shouldn't be good in someone else's life. And all of these things, Peter is saying, listen, this is stuff that will keep you from loving others well. So we need to get rid of it. So if that's what we need to get rid of, then what do we need to pursue? And interestingly, Peter does not give us a long list of things to pursue. You know what he tells us to do? He tells us to pursue one thing. He said, I want you to pursue God's word because God's word changes us. It transforms us from the inside out. This is what he says. Oh, go back, go back. Uh, this is, um, go back, <laughs> sorry. We'll go back to the, there we go, right here. We'll just stick with this for a moment, okay? He says this, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk. That is God's word. So that by it, you may grow up in your salvation. So he says, this is what you need to get rid of, but here's what you need to pursue. You need to pursue God's word, like pure spiritual milk. And he uses the picture of an infant, a baby. And by it, he is not saying um, that they're spiritually immature or that we're spiritually immature. He's using it as a just a powerful illustration of how we're to crave God's word in our life. Have you ever been with a baby that is hungry? Yes. Some of you are like, yes. Now, do you tell that baby, hey, just hold on. A couple hours, I'll give you some food. No, it doesn't work. The baby craves it, right? And it doesn't just crave it, it demands it. And this is what Peter says, how we're to come and approach God's word, that we're craving it, that we're demanding, that we're saying, I want God's word. And why do we want it? So that we may grow up in our salvation, so that we might be changed, transformed, that we might grow. And again, this is a value of South Hills Church, that God's word in us changes us. You're familiar with this, right? It's on your hall, the wall. It's on your website. Go, go ahead and go to the, the next slide. <laughs> Sorry. Which is this. God's word in us changes us. I love this. And it's true. It really, it, it really is true. God's word in us, it changes us. It transforms us. This is what Peter's saying. He's saying, hey, crave it. It will allow you to grow up spiritually. It will allow you to grow in maturity. And this is a good thing. Now, if you have a friend who comes to you and says, hey, I'm, I'm really not feeling very healthy in my life. I want to change my diet. I, I, need, I need your help. Can you help me come up with a new diet plan to help me get healthier in life? And you suggest to your friend, here's the, here's, here's the plan. This is what you need to follow. You'll be healthier. Trust me. And you say to your friend, okay, once a week, eat a salad. Don't do, don't do anything else. Just once a week, eat a salad. Everything, every, you know, just continue your, your eating patterns, have as much ice cream, junk food the rest of the week, but once a week. Maybe just pick, you know, one day, Wednesdays, lunch, have a salad. Now, most of you would say, wait a minute, that's it? Now, for some of you, that might be an improvement, and we'll take that, right? <laughs> it's a starting point. But most of us would say, really? You want to get healthy? And you're just saying one salad a week, that's it? Most of you would say, oh, I think we need to probably have a little more consistency. Do a little bit more than just that. 
If someone comes to you and says, hey, I really want to grow spiritually. I really want to be transformed by God. I really want to follow him, pursue him, understand his will for my life. And you say to your friend, okay, here's the deal. Okay, show up to church on Sunday mornings. Listen to the pastor give a sermon, and you'll hear the Bible for 30 minutes or 40 minutes, whatever it is. And the rest of the week, do whatever you want. You listen to whatever you want, watch whatever you want, but once a week. And if you do that, go crazy. Do it four times a month. That's like more than the average church attender, right? So four times, so four times a month, you get 30 minutes, 40 minutes of God's word. Would you tell your friend that? Peter wouldn't. What would Peter say? He said, crave it. Go after it. Don't just settle for it. Now, again, it's a starting point. We'll take that. But listen, Peter would say, listen, you want to grow spiritually. You want to grow up in your maturity. You want to have God's word in you so it can change you. Then let's pursue it on a regular basis. Let's crave for it. Let's hunger for God's word in our life. But here's the good thing. The good news is this, that the more we pursue God's word, the more we want And that's what Peter says here. He says this. He says, um, so that now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I love that. He said, you've tasted that God is good. The more you do it, the more you want. The more you recognize how good God is and how his word speaks into our life and it transforms us from the inside out, the more you want. This is the motivation to study God's word, to to pursue God's word. It's not that we do it because we're afraid God's going to judge us or love us any less. Listen, God's love for you is unconditional. It's not based upon your Bible knowledge or how much you read the Bible or how often you read it. His love for you is unconditional. But listen, the more you understand who he is, the more you pour into his word and you pursue it, the more you'll recognize how good God is and you'll love him more as a result. That's what he's talking about here. And that's been a value here at South Hills Church. You have valued pursuing God's word. It's been part of your core values. God's word in us changes us. But it's not just a value that you have as a church and individually, but it's also something that you've had a commitment to take to the ends of the earth. You want God's word to go to the ends of the earth. What do I mean by that? Well, I don't know if you know this, but you and I have a mutual friend. We have a mutual friendship with the Beck family. This is the Beck family right here. Um, We love the Beck family. They're among um, our closest friends. And we love them, and we love that you love them. And whether you know this or not, these are, they're missionaries that are supported by this church. You have made a commitment to care for them, to support them in their work. And so what is it that they're doing? They are um, living right now with the Turu people in a remote <laughs> tribe in Papua, Indonesia. And they've been there for well over a decade, and they've been learning the language. And so they've learned the Turu language. And then um, over the course of time, they have now developed a written language for Turu. Now, they previously had not had a written language, and so they've learned and developed a written language for them, which is an, it's a phenomenal thing. And right now, they, just this past year, they started building a house, um, a literacy house, a school, in which they can teach the Turu people their own language to read and write for the first time, their own language. And at the same time that they're doing that, um, they have been translating God's word um, into the language, the Turu language, which is cool because now that they're learning to read, but the translation continues to progress, they'll be able to have as their first book God's word in their hands. Isn't that amazing? Honestly, I cannot imagine what it would be like to not have the Bible in English. 
to not have the Bible in my own heart language. And for the first time ever, the Turu tribe are going to have the Bible in their language. It's an amazing thing. And it's something that I want to get behind. It's something that I want to invest in. And I love the fact that you've chosen to invest in that as well. And it's fun to think about that, you know, when we give, what, we get to, what we're doing is we're investing in the Turu people. And I just get excited to think about someday when we get to heaven, we're going to meet a whole group of people that we've never met before. And we will be able to celebrate the fact that we supported getting God's word into their language. And it's transformed them. And it will continue to transform lives for generations. Isn't that amazing? Yes, that is so good. God's word reveals new life in Christ. It endures and it, it, it changes us. It transforms us. There's a quote from Charles Spurgeon that I just want you to see. It says, it says a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. I love this quote. And listen, this does not mean that in your life you won't suffer, that in your life you won't struggle. In fact, that's guaranteed. You're going to. But there is a correlation. Spurgeon just simply said, hey, people who are in God's word and have been transformed by God and, and through faith in Jesus Christ, they live differently. They are set apart they live holy lives, and they love people deeply, even when they're suffering. This quote is special to me because I found it in my mom's Bible. And it's, I've held on to it, and I, uh, it's, it is special to me because my mom uh, probably suffered more than anyone I know. And yet she loved people probably more deeply than anyone I know. My mom suffered uh, was, a, was a cancer survivor. She suffered from rheumatoid arthritis. She had years and years and years of different diseases, infections, and, and complications. Um, she ultimately passed away at age 59 from brain tumors. And at her memorial service, doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, physical therapists, neighbors, city officials, people that I'd never met before came to her service. I mean, it was just overflowing, packed with so many people I couldn't believe it. Honestly, it's because she lived differently and she loved people dif so deeply. At her memorial, there was all these different ladies that wanted to speak because they were all convinced that they were her best friend. <laughs> Dozens of ladies, I'm not joking. And I, I, they could have all been her best friend because she loved so deeply. And she was invested in people so sincerely, deeply from the heart. The question is, well, how could she love people like that in the midst of all the suffering? I'll tell you, there's a correlation. Because I told you, I probably don't know anyone who, uh, who suffered more. I probably don't know anyone who loved more. But I probably also don't know, one, know anyone who pursued God's word more than my mom. Any morning that I would wake up early enough, I could just consistently count on seeing her at her desk layered with layers and layers and layers of blankets. <laughs> Studying God's word and praying every morning, consistently without fail. It's a powerful image for me still today. See, loving others deeply, even when suffering, wasn't something she just decided to do one day. It was something that 
was developed in her over years and years and years of spending time in God's Word, where the Holy Spirit worked in her and on her. And God worked through her, through His Word, speaking into her life. My brothers and I got the opportunity to keep all of my mom's Bibles. And um, we divided them up, and there's one I couldn't bring, honestly, because it truly was falling apart. (laughs) But I brought some of them here today. And they're special. This one was our first Bible, and it's, it's falling apart, and it's got, you know, the old pictures. I don't know if you can see that. It's, uh, it's got a notes that she's written. It's got a note that, from uh, her mom who gave it to her, and, uh, this is a, and it's got her handwriting in it. It's just special. This Bible is a, the Living Bible, and uh, this is a different translation that she used at different times to just get a fresh, fresh view on God's Word. And, uh, and again, it's, it's marked up and written and, and, and well used. This is a study Bible that she had, the Ryrie Study Bible, right here. And it's got all of her notes and different things. And it's just, it's just poured over with her highlighting, with her writing. She invested time in, in pursuing God's word on a regular basis. And it transformed her. And listen, I don't, I don't know anyone who lives so differently like that and loves people so, so sincerely that hasn't spent a significant amount of time interacting with God and his word. People that spend time with God in his word and have been transformed from the inside out, they live differently. Peter says we're to be called, set apart, to be different, to love others deeply. How does that happen? It comes from God's word. That's the resource that he's given to us. And here's the deal. It's not... It's not just that my mom had a lot of Bibles, but it's who the Bible pointed her to that's so significant. Her Bibles pointed her to Jesus, who showed us what it means to love. Through his love for us, willing to offer his life for us. He showed us what it means to love others, even when we're suffering. When you consider Jesus on the cross. To the soldiers who nailed him on the cross, he prayed for their forgiveness. To the thief who was next to him, he offered assurance. To his mother who was out in the crowd, he offered comfort and protection. And for all of us, he offers salvation. It was his love that held him there. And it makes all the difference. South Hills Church, may we be a people with Bibles that are falling apart. That God's word in us would change us, transform us so that we look more like Jesus. That we love others deeply, sincerely from the heart, even when we're suffering. Well, we need God's help with that, don't we? So let's take a moment and let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word. And that through your word, you reveal to us the good news about Jesus Christ who offered his life for us so that we could be saved from our sin, saved from the emptiness, the enslavement, the pain, the shame, the guilt, and we can have new life eternally as well as right now. And so God, we pray that by your spirit, you would transform us and through your word, you would change us so that we could look more like your son that we could love others deeply, even when we're suffering. God, we pray this together in your name.
Amen.